0: Former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson was the commencement speaker this year at Virginia Military Institute. He urged the cadets to confront what he called the crisis of ethics among our leaders in both the public and private sector.
1: As I reflect upon the state of our American democracy, I observe a growing crisis in ethics and integrity. As you look forward, your role in building a brighter future will depend on more than simply your education and your skills. Your contributions to society depend on a firm, ethical foundation of personal and professional integrity.
0: Tillerson then told the graduates to recognize what truth is and what it is not.
1: If our leaders seek to conceal the truth or we as people become accepting of alternative realities that are no longer grounded in facts, then we as American citizens are on a pathway to relinquishing our freedom.
0: I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, learning to do the right thing. Later in the show, we'll meet a professor of ethics who made a documentary film about American Vietnam veterans returning there to do humanitarian work. But first, Duncan Richter is a professor of English rhetoric and humanistic studies at Virginia Military Institute where Rex Tillerson was the graduation speaker. Duncan teaches the cadets there a course on ethics. He's also the author of a book called Why Be Good. He says taking an ethics course teaches you how to think through all sides of an issue and determine what resonates with you.
1: I mean, I try to do a lot in that course. It's partly an introduction to philosophy, a sort of history of ideas. But also I want to get the students to think about what they think is right and what's wrong and what's good and what's evil and and why, to understand what other people think and why they think it. You know, Slavery, the Holocaust, that kind of thing is just clearly evil, and you could think of examples of things that are clearly good, but we tend to focus on the stuff that's difficult and the things that people disagree about.
0: How many years have you taught ethics in college?
1: 22.
0: Have you noticed the students have changed at all? Have they come these days with, let's say, less grounding in a formal religion?
1: I think maybe. I'm not sure. I mean, I teach at at the Virginia Military Institute, which is a, we have pretty conservative students. They tend to be fairly religious. Um, I haven't noticed a big change there. But certainly the things that people care about and get upset about have changed over the years. And I think maybe their confidence in their beliefs has has changed. You get a lot of people these days, a lot of students, saying things like, this is considered wrong, or this is considered right. And they're reluctant to actually say, this is wrong, or this is right, and to, to take ownership of moral values or principles.
0: Does that worry you at all?
1: Yes. Yeah, it does. I mean, I, I think to some extent, it's just a matter of how they express their ideas and how they've been taught to express them. So that's less worrying. But to the extent that they think you just can't have moral beliefs so or principles i think that's a real problem that's that's scary
0: it's so interesting that you do teach ethics at a military college it's not a us military college but it has uniformed cadets with very mm-hmm. strict rules of pride and behavior do you mm. teach them therefore a different set of philosophers and principles and case studies than you might in a college of a different sort
1: not very consciously I probably do I mean I've, I've tried a bunch of different things over the years and and go with what works and we do look at military ethics a little bit but it's it's not a military ethics course it's a general ethics course
0: there's also something called an ethics bowl where colleges come together once a year and compete with each other how do you win an ethics That's
1: right. bowl? well not by being saintly it's it's more <laughs> like a sort of debate you get sent a couple of months in advance 15 cases to study and then when you get to the competition you're give you're told which case it is and you're given a specific question about it and you then only have a couple of minutes to get your answer to that question ready you're graded on on all of this you know have you answered the question properly is your answer clear and logical have you referred to relevant ethical principles to support what you're saying? Do you show that you understand different points of view? That that kind of thing. Receiving the cases at the beginning, is, especially this year, was great because there were 15 of them, and they were really, if you'd studied them, you would know what was going on in the world. I mean, there were things like questions about free speech and political correctness, environmental protection and issues. One was about a professor who... I think, are dressed in blackface at a Halloween party. Should that be allowed? Should that not be allowed? Is it a free speech issue? What are the limits of when is it okay to limit a professor's speech in order to avoid offense to students? And then another question we had was about should Facebook, for example, use censorship to limit fake news or to shut down fake news?
0: You know, our politics are so galvanized now. Do you sense a heightened level of debate, conversation, and engagement in your classes because of the political divide we're in?
1: I think it's it's the other way around, actually. I think people are a little bit... This may be specific to VMI rather than anywhere else, but the cadets all live you know, in the same barracks. They all have to live together. They all have to get along. And anything very controversial, they're likely to try to avoid talking about it. And I think... Even at a place where we have, you know, a lot of conservative students, a lot of Republicans, they know that opinions about Trump are are quite divided. um, And I think they're wary of, of causing conflict.
0: Where do the students seem most engaged in your class? What sorts of ideas seem to most capture their fancy?
1: Well, that, that's one of the things that's changed over the years. I mean, abortion used to be huge. I used to teach for about two weeks arguments for and against abortion. I quickly learned that the first day, I just had to not really try to teach anything because after about five minutes of class, somebody would say something and it would just set off this big argument. And for the next hour, you'd have people arguing back and forth. And I just had to let that happen. And then the second class we could actually think more calmly about it. That doesn't happen anymore. That just doesn't seem to be such a hot-button topic. What I find these days really gets them interested is things that you wouldn't expect them to to be so interested in. So, for example, I teach a religion course, and we had a very lively class about an attempt to prove the existence of God. It's called The Ontological Argument. It's very technical, but it's very short, and people are always convinced it must be wrong. But, they yeah, they spent about an hour trying to explain why it's wrong and, and offering different suggestions to that.
0: Don't you love that they're so engaged?
1: It was great. Yes, yes. That's one of those classes you, you dream about having.
0: In 2008, you wrote a wonderful, fairly small book that was a survey course, really, of the philosophical arguments that maybe stems from a character in Plato's Republic, where the character argues, should we be good or should we be really devoted to our own self-interest? Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, the, the character is called Thrasymachus, which is a bit of a mouthful, but he, yeah, he, he thinks that we just should not try to be good. If you try to do the right thing, if you care about that, that means putting other people first, at least sometimes, and that's never a rational thing to do, and so you're a fool if you do that, and you just shouldn't. So he thinks that if you can ever break the rules, you should do so. And ideally, you would become a dictator or a tyrant and make the rules yourself. And really, the rest of the Republic is Plato's response to that challenge. I mean, Plato doesn't agree with him, but it's really hard to explain what's wrong with that way of thinking because it makes a certain kind of sense. Aristotle thinks that what everybody wants is to live a good life, um, but we disagree about what that means. And he concludes that you really haven't lived a good life if you've, you know, if you've become a dictator. If you're Stalin or somebody like that, that's not a good life, that's a, that's a bad life, you failed. Um, who else? David Hume has a very different kind of response. What Hume thinks is that you should be the kind of person you would want one of your children to marry. And so you want that person to be honest and trustworthy and hardworking and entertaining and fun to be around if you're a, a rule breaker or a criminal or a, a tyrant, you're not going to be fun to be around. You, know, you think about, I always think about Stalin um, forcing his friends to stay up all night watching Westerns and drinking vodka with him. And they didn't <laughs> want to be there. They wanted to go to bed, but they, they had to do it. Otherwise they knew they might get killed basically. So if you're that kind of person, people don't really like you. You don't have any real friends and your, your life is not that much fun then let's see well then you've got uh, Immanuel Kant again a very different kind of person who thinks that it's the nature of ethics to follow pretty strict rules along the lines of the 10 commandments that rules like that so kant thinks that ethics is about you know don't kill don't lie and there really isn't much of an answer to why you shouldn't it's just your duty you must not do those things because they're wrong
0: Before you wrote Why Be Good, you had written a piece on a 20th century philosopher, some consider the greatest philosopher of the 20th century.
1: Ludwig Wittgenstein, yes. He's very interesting. I I mean, interesting man, interesting life, interesting work.
0: Was it his life or his philosophy that drew you to him?
1: Originally, it was his philosophy. I I was my senior year in college preparing for final exams, and I hadn't taken a course on Wittgenstein. And I was studying lots of you know, theories about the nature of the mind and that kind of thing. And I had a friend who was taking a course on Wittgenstein, and she would argue with me back and forth. And eventually, it took a while, but eventually I became convinced that she was completely right and all the other theories I'd studied were wrong. So I thought, Wittgenstein's right. But his life is very interesting as well. I think that helps attract people to his work.
0: He was born around the same time, I guess, as Hitler in mm-hmm. Austria That's right. to a... Fabulously wealthy and accomplished family. Mm-hmm. Youngest of many children.
1: Yes, that's right. They were very, very rich. I mean, so it would be like Bill Gates's son or someone like that. The youngest son of an extremely wealthy family grew up in a very cultured household. They had composers coming to their house. I mean, their house was called, I think, the Wittgenstein Palace.
0: He had um, a brother who was a concert pianist?
1: Yeah, very accomplished, very talented, very talented family. Um, but he com- he became convinced that all that wealth was a bad thing, and so he gave it away. Um, he volunteered to fight in the First World War. He didn't have to. He had medical problems, but he, he insisted on fighting. And once he was in the army, he insisted on being put in the most dangerous position he could, which took a while, but eventually they put him on the front line. He was—I don't know exactly where he was, but maybe in no man's land— identifying where the the British, I guess, troops were and calling in artillery strikes on them. So a very dangerous position to be in. But he wanted to sort of test himself in that way. I think he believed that if he was afraid to die, there must be something wrong with the way he was living his life.
0: He had brothers who committed suicide.
1: Yes, I think three. One of them shot himself during the First World War. He was an officer and his troops were not obeying his orders. I think they were running away. And he didn't know what to do and shot himself in in shame, I guess. One of them wanted to be an actor, I believe, and his father didn't approve. And he very theatrically drank poison in a bar in, I think it was Berlin, and died. And then the other one disappeared in the Chesapeake Bay. And we don't really know whether that was suicide or not, but it seems suspicious.
0: Going back to the course you teach on ethics at Virginia Military Institute, It's very heartening that there are people training our minds and training the minds of others to really be good listeners, deep thinkers, and moral thinkers.
1: Mm -hmm. I think it's important. I mean, it's it's very difficult because you think about teaching physics or history, you want somebody who knows a lot of physics, knows a lot of history, and imparts those facts. When it comes to ethics, I think we might think there are no facts, or, or who's to say which person knows those facts. We tend to focus so much on the gray areas that we forget that some things really are black and white. You know, the Nazis really were evil. Um, Slavery really is evil. Torture really is evil. I think it's important to remind people about those things that we all know but we might forget about, especially when we focus on the more difficult or controversial issues. It's also important to realize that not every academic course is filling people's heads with facts. It's getting people to think and helping them understand each other, to read, to listen, to develop their own ideas as well.
0: Duncan Richter, thank you for sharing your insights with me on With Good Reason.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Duncan Richter is a professor of English Rhetoric and Humanistic Studies at Virginia Military Institute and the author of Why Be Good? Coming up next Ethics and Reconciliation. My next guest also teaches an ethics course, but outside of the classroom, Stephen Emanuel has also worked with reconciliation between American Vietnam veterans and the Vietnamese people. He's the producer of the film Making Peace in Vietnam. Stephen Emanuel is a professor of philosophy at Virginia Wesleyan University and a recipient of this year's Virginia Outstanding Faculty Award. Stephen, where did you first begin developing your love of reasoned argument and deep listening? Was it in childhood?
2: You know, that may have been Uh, the case because I was raised in a sort of a rigorous uh, religious home and had exposure to uh, a very robust religious and spiritual life. So I think reflecting on things, thinking about my experience, thinking about the consequences of my actions for other people was part of my experience from childhood, for sure. My mother was uh, a devout Catholic. My father's side of the family was Protestant. I think my grandmother was mainly Congregationalist.
0: By a certain age, you began studying Western philosophy and later began to investigate Eastern thought. Tell me about your evolution in this.
2: When I started at university, I was a chemistry major. I ended up taking some courses in the history and philosophy of science, and I got very interested in philosophy of religion, but mainly from the the perspective of how people within religious traditions make knowledge claims. I mean, the, the uh, justification for religious belief. And then, uh, and I did a lot of work on Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard was a 19th century Danish philosopher, theologian, His dates are 1813 to 1855, to give you some idea of when he lived. And uh, he was fascinating to me because he was a bit of a troublemaker. He was a thorn in the side of the state church of Denmark because he had a very keen eye for uh, hypocrisy in religious life. He made a distinction between two ways of thinking about the truth. He felt that religion had just sort of become a very comfortable part of culture, where people just said the right things and said that they believed the right things, and they go to church, and it was mostly a social event, and so on and so forth. But that they weren't really manifesting much of a spiritual life. There didn't seem to be very much struggle there. And, and of course, just saying that you believe X, well, that's one thing, but uh, what does that mean in terms of how you actually live and how you struggle with trying to interpret your faith for uh, the world that you live in. And uh, those those themes really spoke deeply to me.
0: How did you move from your deep interest in Kierkegaard and Western philosophy to Eastern thinking and Buddhism?
2: Well, I had had some exposure to Asian thought traditions from my university days. But the thing that really impressed me about uh, the Buddhist tradition uh, was its emphasis on reflection, taking that step back and doing that internal kind of introspective work, thinking deeply about the nature of one's experience. In our society, uh, things are, are moving pretty quickly. People are are living more and more, it seems to me, right close to the edge of their experience. We're not very good at stopping, relaxing, reflecting. Uh, We're very busy, really caught up in our lives. And it seemed like this emphasis that uh, the Buddhist tradition brought was really timely. It, It was also Buddhist ethics I found particularly attractive for this reason. Because there's something about the Buddhist way of approaching ethics that really um, dovetails nicely with the things that we were talking about concerning Kierkegaard. And that is that in, in, in Buddhism, it certainly isn't enough just to know a moral truth. In other words, you may know what the right thing is to do in an intellectual way, but the real emphasis is on trying to become the sort of person who can embody that. So Buddhism doesn't only have moral precepts and moral teachings about things like compassion, sympathetic joy, uh, for example, but, but it actually has exercises that help people to develop a deeper capacity to be able to embody those virtues. And that's something that's uh, virtually absent from modern Western philosophy. If we think about the moral life in a certain way as, say, utilitarians would, we look at the consequences of the different options that we have in front of us, and then we we look to see which of those options represent uh, the greatest amount of happiness for the greatest number of people, and then we go that way. But this is very much a rational kind of activity. And in the Buddhist tradition, the focus is more on self-transformation. It's about trying to become compassion. I thought that that would be new for students in the Western curriculum, for my students, because our ethics courses never included anything like that.
0: You had an experience in the early 2000s where you traveled to Vietnam with a group of Vietnam veterans who wanted to come back and maybe achieve some healing experience in the course of the trip?
2: Yeah, so I had, uh, I had gone to Vietnam to exploring some opportunities maybe for bringing students there. That was in 2006. And one of the things that really struck me, first of all, how, how many signs of the Vietnam War were still visible in the country? I became aware of the uh, ongoing consequences of Agent Orange contamination. And uh, I I visited a number of homes for children who were dealing with uh, catastrophic deformities that were as a, a result of genetic mutations that were attributable to Agent Orange. I had no idea the country was still feeling so much, you know, the legacy of that war. So that was a very stunning thing. And I also met some American Vietnam veterans doing humanitarian work. Mm. They had returned for the, the purpose of uh, trying to find their own kind of uh, healing. And they ended up getting involved in humanitarian projects designed to address some of these lingering problems. And that really spoke deeply to me. So I ended up going back, and between 2006 and 2008, I took two groups of students to participate in aspects of this uh, research project, which became a, a feature-length documentary project, actually. And, uh, and we followed veterans who were involved in cleaning up unexploded ordnance, veterans who were involved in uh, reaching out to families that were affected by birth defects, uh, children, having some families actually have children uh, in which all of them are afflicted by one kind of birth defect or another related to Agent Orange. The dioxin levels in the blood of people who live in some of these areas, especially in areas where they're eating fish from local waterways, where a lot of dioxin fell during the war, are highly elevated. The problem with dioxin is that it it doesn't just disappear. It gets into fatty tissues, and and it causes genetic mutations, and these can go on. We don't actually know for how many generations because uh, it hasn't uh, run its course fully yet, as far as we know.
0: Did you have a chance to deepen your understanding of Buddhism while you were there?
2: I did. I interviewed Thich Nhat Hanh, who is a, a very a well-known Zen Buddhist uh, teacher and author who was active in Vietnam during the war with other monks and nuns, you know, tending to the children who had been injured. And many of the vets that I had encountered had gotten involved in Buddhist meditation practice as part of their own healing process. So I contacted Thich Nhat Hanh if I could interview him about his work during the war. And he agreed if I traveled with him back there on a three week retreat that he had uh, planned. This was the second of two visits back to Vietnam that, um, that he had made after a, about four dec- decades of exile.
0: He was not in he, Vietnam?
2: Oh no, he was exiled from Vietnam during the war and uh, ended up in France where he still lives. Uh, he started a, a monastic community there called Plum Village in France. Um, and so when he left, of course, the relations weren't very good between him and the, and the government. We actually went back to the temple where he was ordained as a, as a boy. And that was the first time he had been back there since the war.
0: And later, a group of Buddhist monks came to eastern Virginia, near where you teach, hoping to open a temple in a small rural town there, and met resistance in the community. Was the temple ever built?
2: Yes, the story had a a happy ending. And the city helped them to find a property on uh, Davis Street, which is actually very close to Virginia Wesleyan University. And they have since really flourished in, in that location and doing very well.
0: Who were these monks? These were people of a certain order who had come from Vietnam?
2: Yes. The master monk came here because there is a fairly large Vietnamese community, that felt that it had been kind of cut off from that cultural aspect of their lives.
0: The Vietnamese community that is large in this area is there because there's a large naval base and people came here after the fall of Saigon. So the world is very interconnected.
2: The world is very interconnected. <laughs> I think that's a, that's a lesson that we're, we're really waking up to today, isn't it, with the global economy, and yeah, it's, um, the world gets smaller all the time.
0: Stephen Emanuel is a professor of philosophy at Virginia Wesleyan University and a recipient of this year's Virginia Outstanding Faculty Award. For a link to his documentary film, Making Peace with Vietnam, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason. In 2016, Duke basketball player Grayson Allen was suspended after several cases of what looked to be intentional tripping.
1: Allen hard fall. Allen tripped him. Balding, yes, Balding. And Rick Pitino up off the bench saying he was tripped, but no call there. Spaulding went down hard.
0: The commentators have the same conversation as every single person sitting on their couch at home. Was it intentional? They think it probably was, but they're not sure. I thought it was done purposely. But who knows? You can't read a kid's mind. But then... They watch the replay in slow motion.
1: No, oh, no, that looks purposeful to me. I would agree with you, Jay. His head turns, he sees where, yeah.
0: After seeing it in slow motion, they both agree. It's clearly intentional. That response isn't surprising to Ben Converse. Ben is a professor of public policy and psychology at the University of Virginia's Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy. He says watching a video in slow motion makes actions look more intentional than when you see them in real time.
3: At the most basic level, our work shows that slowing video down makes actions, and in particular harmful actions, seem more intentional.
0: In your experiments, what did you look at?
3: The experiments are really simple designs. We take a a big group of people, a few hundred people in most cases, uh, and we show them a video of a harmful action. In some of our studies, that's actually been a murder that occurred outside a convenience store. In other studies, it was a a violent and uh, illegal hit in a football game. And Half of those people, we randomly assign them to see the video in slow motion. and The other half of the people watch the exact same replay, uh, but at regular speed. And we asked them a number of questions. Most importantly, did that seem intentional? Did it seem premeditated? Uh, And reliably, the people who see the slow motion version of of the event say that it was more intentional.
0: And why does that matter? What does it matter what the intent is?
3: Well, intentional actions are more negative. They're more um, guilty. And people see actions that are intentional as being more worthy of punishment. Uh, And this is true just between people in in informal and social sense, but it's also true of the criminal justice system. So murders, for example, in most states are treated uh, differently if they're first-degree murder, which is intentional, as opposed to being second-degree murder, uh, which is defined different ways in different states, but almost always boils down to intentionality. In some cases, that can be the difference between lethal injection and life in prison.
0: Are there any famous cases that pivoted on video and slow motion video in particular?
3: As we were working on this project, one that came to our attention was in Pennsylvania. It's a case uh, about a 2007 murder in Philadelphia uh, where a man named John Lewis shot a police officer named Charles Cassidy during an armed robbery. And Mr. Lewis pled guilty of general murder. There was no doubt that uh, he murdered this police officer, and there was surveillance footage of the event. What the trial was essentially about was deciding whether it should be first-degree murder or second-degree murder. And during the trial, one of the pieces of evidence, probably a key piece of evidence, was the surveillance footage And the prosecution showed that surveillance footage in slow motion. They also showed it in regular speed. The jury decided, based on that evidence and lots of other evidence, that it was, in fact, a first-degree murder. And in 2009, that case, the appeal of that case, went to the state Supreme Court of Pennsylvania.
0: In other words, John Lewis and his attorney appealed and said, it's not fair because they slowed it down and made it look much more intentional.
3: Yes, exactly. They had they had a number, there are multiple points in their appeal, but that was uh, certainly the one that caught our attention and, and arguably the, the, key, uh, the key debate. They said that slowing it down created a false impression of premeditation.
0: How did the appeal go?
3: The uh, state Supreme Court upheld the original verdict. They said that Showing it in slow motion helps people to see what actually happened. And one of the justices even asked something along the lines of, I don't understand what you could see in slow motion that you couldn't see at regular speed.
0: But you would say what's possible you see in slow motion is what?
3: Time is at the crux of all of this. And the best that we can explain our effects so far is from just a subjective sense of time. So we, we ask people in all of these studies, how much time did it seem like the person had to assess the situation? And that number, that estimate, goes way up in slow motion. And to the extent that that goes up, that's the extent to which uh, intentionality rises. In one of our studies, we even took pains to draw people's attention to the timestamp that was on the video. This is one of the things that came up in the appeal of the Lewis case. One of the justices said that there was a timestamp and so every viewer knew, even if they saw it in slow motion, that this only happened in about two seconds. What we're saying is that people don't have a clear objective understanding of what two seconds is time estimates can be pushed around pretty easily we estimate time differently under different conditions if we're stressed if we're aroused if we're motivated so time is itself sort of malleable and even when you can make sure that people have an objective correct answer about how much time actually passed at the same time they can say subjectively it felt like there was more time And when that happens, you still see this inflated intentionality.
0: Give me an example where we would all know, yeah, that's true.
3: Uh, Well, I think no sports fan would be surprised uh, by our results. So every sports fan, anytime there's a flop or a fight or some particularly aggressive or flagrant action, sports fans can spend hours seeing the same replay uh, on the, the never ending sports news cycle. And... Sports fans know that it just looks more intentional when you see it that slow.
0: Did you see the footage of the tripping incident by the Duke University player Grayson Allen?
3: Yep. Looks more intentional in slow motion.
0: Does it look too intentional in slow motion?
3: It's hard to know. I mean, we want to be very careful as researchers about saying that this is an existence proof. This work shows that slow motion can bias people. Uh, But we have a special usage of bias. When we say bias, what we mean is that it systematically moves people's judgments in one direction. That's not saying anything about making them more wrong. So that's an open question. We don't know if slow motion is making people more accurate or not. And that's one of the big questions that we're continuing to work on at this stage.
0: Have you discovered that it biases a lot or just a little?
3: Another great question. It biases... A little, uh, but a little that can be very consequential. So, for example, in one of our uh, studies with surveillance of the shooting, we find about a 10% increase in people saying intentional. Um, That can add up very quickly. So one of the things that we did to try to assess, is that a big deal or is that just a small scientific deal? Uh, was to run some uh, basically simulations of how that would affect potential jury voting. So if for each individual person, there's about a 10% increase in that person saying, yes, I see that as intentional, then the odds of starting with a jury that is unanimously seeing this as intentional goes up about fourfold.
0: In the last year, we've all been shocked to see how much video is out there now of violent episodes between police officers and people in the street. Have there been any of those incidents that you thought were affected by the use of slow motion video?
3: I think it's possible. It's hard to generalize across videos that we haven't seen. You know, there's some indication, though, that some of these police shootings that these are questions that are on the lawyers' minds. We, As soon as this work went out, we were contacted pretty quickly by lawyers who clearly had goals about whether they would want slow motion to be shown in, in their trial or not.
0: Right. It works on both sides, right? So here you have John Lewis who shot a police officer, and the prosecution slows the video down, creating an impression, at least, of more intention. And then you have this happening to police officers themselves with body cams, the perception that there's more intention there, perhaps, if it slowed down.
3: Yeah. And body cams are going to be interesting for a lot of reasons. The thing about video that I think is so interesting is that it just gives this impression of reality. When you see a video, it feels like you're seeing real life and it's very easy to forget that it could be edited, that it could be manipulated in a number of ways. People are not necessarily on guard against potential bias. With the body cameras, there's that possibility of footage being edited after the fact, so post-production type effects, but then there are also all these interesting dimensions of the perspective from which that camera is shooting. Um, there's a wonderful demonstration uh, that was on the New York Times from a law professor at the University of South Carolina named Seth Stofton. and he just does these wonderful demonstrations where you see that... You have this experience of one reality when you see from the perspective of the body camera, raw footage, and then he zooms out and shows you, you know, a surveillance camera from above and you see something totally different. So one of these looks like a violent encounter between a police officer and a suspect. It looks like they're wrestling from the body camera. When you see the third person view and zoom out, they're dancing a jig together. Uh, But there's just something about this perspective difference and the camera swinging around wildly and the speed of it uh, that makes it feel like an attack. And and I think it would be hard to find many people who would see that and not be certain that that's what's going on when they saw that body camera footage.
0: Do you think we're in a kind of wild, wild west in terms of courtroom use of video now?
3: Yeah, I think that's an excellent way to put it. Uh, Wild, wild west for sure We have some transcripts from cases, original cases, and appeals of some of these cases of discussions about how to display video, what order to show it in, what speed to show it in. And it just makes very clear that there are no rules yet, or at least that the rules are emerging, and they're emerging on the fly.
0: Do you think that this research fits into a sort of larger look at how unreliable humans are in judging court evidence?
3: Yeah, and there's decades of really important, really great work on eyewitness identification and the reliability of memory and of attention and perception. And frankly, if you're around this evidence and you, you know this evidence from a psychological point of view, it's quite scary. Uh, it's the the things that jurors will often take as being pretty ironclad evidence uh, can be pretty fallible when it comes to the human mind. You know, and I think there's great promise, therefore, in being able to use video evidence or film evidence. Um, but what's scary is that it's still potentially biasing or it still can have these biasing influences. And, and in some ways, maybe it's potentially even scarier because it feels like reality so there's this you know in some cases people may at least be able to acknowledge the limits of their memory it, it may be the case and I'm just speculating now that that people are even less likely to recognize the limits of perspective and of everything that goes into creating a, a particular video image. You know, surveillance cameras are rising in many cities, smartphones are in everybody's pockets, body cams are going into place in a lot of police forces, and so I think that video evidence is is only gonna be on the rise. Uh, But we need to understand this a lot better before we go all in on trying to use it as deciding evidence.
0: Converse is a professor of public policy and psychology at the University of Virginia's Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy. Coming up next, the children of incarcerated parents. The United States makes up 5% of the world's population, but it's also home to 25% of the world's prison population. Incarceration rates have risen significantly in the last several decades and it's having an effect on more and more children. Danielle Delaire is a psychology professor at the College of William & Mary. She says the children of parents who are in jail or prison face particular burdens. Danielle, you have studied attachment issues for children of people in prison. Why is that so important? What do you mean by attachment issues? Of course, humans need
4: parents. That's how we survive. and um when children are separated from their mothers or fathers due to incarceration or other reasons, they really don't have the opportunity to have a, a loving bond. Children want to stay close or maintain proximity to their parents so they, they can be protected and have all the things that they need. So my background's in developmental psychology, and I studied attachment in graduate school. And it was in that setting that I had interviews and discussions with parents about their children's you know history of having you know anxiety or depression or other issues. And it came up often that this son or daughter had a lot of anxiety when they were locked up. And I think the first big thing was understanding the context that these children are developing in. who is caring for them when their parents are absent. Did they see their mom or dad get arrested? Did they um, see criminal activity in their home? Are they now separated from a brother or sister because the same caregiver can't care for all the siblings that they might have? So that's what we've really been kind of digging out. Not just is it the parents incarcerated, but what happened because of that incarceration. And, and that'll give you a lot of clues into who might need some extra support.
0: How widespread is the problem? How many children of incarcerated parents are
4: there? That's a great question. We don't really know. Prisons don't routinely track that information. We have some good estimates in the federal and state prisons. It's estimated that there's about 1.7 million children whose parent is incarcerated. But that doesn't include jails, and there's really not a good estimate from jails. So we say
0: 2.7 million. I don't know if that's right. So when it comes to the very young children, newborns and babies, are there actual psychological deficits when they're separated from their mothers or fathers? Well, thinking about newborns,
4: they're less likely to receive important nutrients that could come from being breastfed from their mother, because the mom's going to be going back to jail. And we see lower rates of breastfeeding amongst that group. And we do see higher levels of disorganized attachment in some instances and insecure attachment as well.
0: What about slightly older children? What do you notice with them?
4: With children in middle childhood, we've seen, I think, remarkably, a lot of resilience. I'm always impressed by just how
0: well these children are doing given what they're facing. Do you think it makes a difference, whether it is the mother who's in prison or the father? Yes, absolutely.
4: Um, When children's mother goes to jail or prison, they're often losing a primary caregiver and attachment figure for them. There's often more disruptions in their lives. Some of the research that we've done has even looked at Um, Differences between when mom and dad go to prison and then youth's own uh, likelihood for offending, and it's higher for young adults whose mother was incarcerated than their father was incarcerated.
0: What are you focusing on with the studies that you have done with children and drawings? What were you trying to discover? You had one girl in particular who had startled you. Yeah. So that
4: was a study looking at attachment through the attachment drawing procedure. So we asked children to draw a picture of their family and we had some children participate whose mom or dad was incarcerated. This child had an incarcerated mother and she was living with her grandmother and she You know, it was definitely a more disturbing image that we saw that this young seven or eight years old girl drew of a family. And and when she described the drawing, she said that this is this is my grandmom's house and it's burning down and we're jumping out the window. And, you know, it was really heartbreaking to hear that. Um, You know, I don't know if her grandmother or mother or somebody's house had actually burned down recently. I just know that when she went to draw her family, it really was fragmented for her. And I suspect that maybe she felt somewhat fragmented when she thought about, well, who is my family? You did another study
0: looking at how teachers interact with children whose parents are incarcerated. What did they describe?
4: Yeah. So that was a two-part study. And in the first part, we talked to teachers about their experiences with children with incarcerated parents and um, how they really want to be sensitive and they want to help. And again, sometimes they just, they don't know what's going on in the family. So, you know, before Mother's Day or Father's Day or some other holiday, they might do something for the children to have something to give the parent. And if they don't know that child's mother or father is incarcerated, that could cause some anxiety, depression, sadness when when going through that kind of activity. And the other thing the teachers noted is that some of their colleagues were not very supportive. And that really spurred the second study that we did in looking at would knowing that a mother or father is incarcerated would that lower teacher's expectations for a child, And for the most part, the answer was no, but there was one instance where it looked like perhaps that teacher's expectations for success
0: for for some children might be lower. What do you think individuals can do best to help children in these situations?
4: I think it's important to see the child for, for who they are, and not just that they have an incarcerated parent, um, but to not define or limit the child
0: because their mother or father is incarcerated. That's one, one thing in their life. Some human rights advocates have called imprisonment of parents the greatest threat to child well-being in the U.S. Do you think that that's an exaggeration? I don't
4: think so. I really don't. I think in some communities, you've got generations of individuals who have been incarcerated, they had incarcerated parents and you know you they don't know what it might be like to have a father and then they don't know what it's like to be a father or a mother in some instances. And so it's really hard to engage in supportive, loving parenting if you don't have role models around. And there are some communities in the United States where for young men in particular, they're more likely to go, to jail or to prison then on in school, and I think that's a tremendous disservice.
0: What are some of the things children go through that the rest of us might not think about when their parent goes to jail? There are three things.
4: One is that a lot of times when a parent goes to jail or prison, there's not an outpouring of community support. And two, I think that a lot of caregivers who are caring for these children they might be really stressed. You know, a, a wife might have lost her husband or, or a partner in rearing the child, even if they weren't together. And then third, I think these children maybe don't have a, the right words to help them process their feelings. For instance, we see children go visit with their incarcerated parent, and when they leave, they might act out more. Because I think at what heart? what's at the heart of it for a lot of children who want to stay connected to their incarcerated parent Is that they miss that incarcerated parent and they worry about them and they want them back. We saw that in our, our teacher study that, you know, after a weekend, especially a weekend where they had visited with the parent, you know, sometimes the children just seem more depressed, more angry, just not quite themselves. The facilities could have more child friendly visitation for sure and, you know, allowing reasonable contact would I probably do wonders, right? Allowing a child to hug a parent, you know, that, that seems so natural. It's it's very unnatural to not be able to hug somebody who you love, who you miss, or who you want to reach out to
0: Danielle Delaire is a professor of psychology at the College of William and Mary. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods. Support also comes from the University of Virginia Health System, connecting doctors and patients through telemedicine to deliver high-quality care throughout Virginia, the U.S., and the world, uvahealth.com. Support also comes from Smithfield, a global food company committed to providing food in a responsible way so consumers can share meals and memories with family and friends. Smithfieldfoods.com With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quants, Elliot Majerzik, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services, and our interns are Georgiana Reed and Emily Hayes. Special thanks this week to Victor Bowen at WHRV. For the podcast, go to iTunes or to WithGoodReasonRadio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.